0: Jesus wants you to know today that even when your heart is cold and hard towards Him, His heart remains tenderly set on you. He wants you to know that you are graciously loved by God even when you have been spectacularly unfaithful. He wants you to know that while you've been saying, Wow, you were beautiful. To all kinds of ugly substitutes and to all kinds of detestable idols, Jesus still looks at you and he says, Wow, you are beautiful and I still love you even though you have been spectacularly unfaithful. Man, that's good news, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I need some good news right at the beginning of today's sermon. When our hearts grow cold and distant Jesus's heart remains set on us. Warm, tender affections remain. And that makes repentance sweet, doesn't it? When you see Jesus as the faithful one who continues to love you when you are unfaithful, that makes repentance sweet. His kindness truly does lead to repentance, doesn't it? What is repentance? It's just turning from sin and turning to Jesus. So let's all repent today, okay? How about that? Let's all repent today, because when we repent, we get Jesus. And that's why repentance is a sweet thing, because we get Jesus. I mean, who knew that repentance of all things could be so sweet? Owning up to your sin, owning up to just how selfish you really are, doesn't seem like it would be a good thing, does it? But it is because you get Jesus. And isn't he what you really want? Repentance connects you once again with Jesus, your first love. So yes, on the surface, repentance does seem like it would be eating liver and drinking prune juice, right? I mean, who signs up for that? Liver and prune juice. (sighs) No thanks. But that's how many of us view repentance, isn't it? But you know what? Repentance is actually comforting. Holding on to your sin and loving it so much and refusing to admit that you've done wrong, that my friends, is eating liver and drinking prune juice. That's an awful place to be. David said that in Psalm 32. He said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. But when I acknowledged my sin, you forgave me. So holding on to our sin and refusing to admit our selfishness, that is eating liver and drinking prune juice. But repentance, on the other hand, is sweet. So who wants in this morning? What I'm proposing to you, it's not heroic. It's not heroic at all. You don't need a PhD in theology to experience it. It just requires faith and honesty. Honesty about who you are. Honesty about what's really inside of your heart. Honesty about your darling and precious sins that you love so much and that I love so much. And faith in Jesus. Honesty and faith. So that means that anybody here can get in on this if they want to. I just love that God makes it so easy for us to come back to him. You just look to Jesus. That's it. There's no hoops to jump through to come back to God. There's no fine print. There's no footnotes. There are no end notes. God makes it so easy for us to return. You can return to him this morning. Maybe you've been running. You can come home today. You look to Jesus, you come on home, and you will find that you will be welcomed with open arms. See, I think repentance needs a makeover in the church. It's not liver and prune juice. It's not sucking on a lemon. It's sweet. And repentance will be an appropriate response to this passage in God's word. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 21. I'm going to give you a heads up on where we're headed. We're shooting for repentance and humility today. And that's exactly what we'll see with King Ahab. And as much as we might huff and puff over how merciful God is to King Ahab, God just keeps showering this scoundrel with mercy just like he does every day with all of us. And what we'll see today is this. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Puritan Richard Sibbs said that. He said, Shall our sins discourage us when he appears there only for sinners? Are you bruised? Be of good comfort. He calls you, Conceal not your wounds, open all before him, and take not Satan's counsel. Never fear to go to God, since we have such a mediator with him, who is not only our friend, but our brother and husband. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Richard Tibbs is saying that because there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us, then we cannot dig so deep as to find sin that is not covered by grace. Jesus is never caught off guard by our sin. He's never caught off guard when we bring our sin to him in confession. It's not like Jesus sees you coming he's like, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Can, can, we, can we cover this guy? Do, do we have enough mercy and grace in the inventory to cover his sins? He's never caught off guard by that at all. So for Richard Sibs, the more that sin in our hearts is exposed, the more we begin to realize what Christ has delivered us from. And that's what King Ahab will do in our passage today. He won't conceal his wounds. He'll open it all before God, and he'll learn once again that there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. And God will once again... Shower him with mercy. I love it. So be prepared to be offended once again today by the overwhelming mercy and grace of God. So, Because no matter how much we huff and puff, God is going to shower King Ahab with mercy once again. 1 Kings chapter 21, beginning in verse 25, And hear the word of the Lord. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. So we get this parenthetical remark here in verses 25 and 26, and it reminds us of just how evil and just how wicked King Ahab, king of Israel, really was. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so for those of you who have heard that God is too holy to look on evil, this should change your mind. Ahab did evil in front of God, and God saw it all. Ahab married Jezebel, a foreign woman, who turned his heart away from Yahweh, away from the Lord. And then Ahab went after idols just like the Amorites and God saw it all. Yahweh saw it all. God saw Ahab worship idols. Now, the Hebrew word here that's used for idols, it's the Hebrew word gilulim. It's very interesting because literally, it means dung pellets, dung, excrement. Number two, it comes from the Hebrew word galal, which means to roll. And so the idea comes from the natural, probably from the natural pellet-like shape of sheep excrement. That looks like it's kind of been rolled into that shape. And so when the Bible uses this word dung pellets here for idols... It gives you an idea about how God views and how God feels about the worship of idols. I don't think God likes idols. He calls them dung. In fact, the Israelites loved to poke fun of their enemies' gods, so they often referred to their false gods as dung pellets. Moses uses this word in Deuteronomy 29.17. It says, and you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. In fact, this is the prophet Ezekiel's favorite word to use to describe idols, which he does repeatedly throughout his prophecy. This word, gilulim, is used 48 times in the Old Testament, and the prophet Ezekiel takes credit for 39 of those 48 uses. Ezekiel loves this word. It's the same word that was used back in 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 10, when the Lord said that he was going to burn up the house of Jeroboam like a man burns up dung. Daniel Block, one of my favorite Old Testament commentators and one of the foremost Old Testament scholars, says this about the the word gilulim that's used so often by Ezekiel. He says, The name has nothing to do with the shape of idols, but it expresses Ezekiel's and Yahweh's disposition toward them. Modern sensitivities prevent translators from rendering this expression as Ezekiel intended it to be heard, but had he been preaching today, he would probably have identified these idols with a four-letter word for excrement. A more caustic comment on idolatry can scarcely be imagined. So let me ask you this morning, this word gilulem, dung pellets, is this word too shocking for you? Is verse 26 of 1 Kings chapter 21 too shocking for For you, is it shocking to hear that King Ahab worshipped dung pellets? Is it too messy? Too messy for church? For a sermon? Too messy to preach? Too messy for a children's Bible? Sometimes I think the English translators and us Western Bible readers with our modern sensitivities, I think we're like Lucy Van Pelt from Peanuts. Do you remember on a Charlie Brown Christmas when Snoopy the dog licks Lucy Van Pelt? What does she say? Ugh, I've been kissed by a dog. I have dog germs. Get some hot water. Get some disinfectant. Get some iodine. That's how some Christians approach the shocking nature of God's word. So do we need to get some Clorox bleach and clean up the dung pellets in verse 26? Do we need to break out some sanitizer? Some iodine? No. This is God's word. And he purposely uses shocking language to get our attention. So don't try to cover this verse with bleach. Don't break out the disinfectant. Don't put hand sanitizer on as you handle 1 Kings. Put the Febreze away. Oh, this is when I really wish we had a scratch and sniff Bible. To make the point come home. Don't try and bleep these words out. And don't opt to read the kids' version. These are God's words, and He wants you and me, just like He wanted the nation of Israel, to understand how He viewed idolatry. It was like worshiping dung pellets. It's like what Puritan Thomas Watson said sin is the devil's excrement. Think about that. Sin is the devil's excrement. And this, these idols, these dung pellets, are what King Ahab went after to worship and not the sovereign Lord. And so Yahweh's word comes to Ahab through the prophet Elijah. But how does Ahab respond? Look at verse 27. And when Ahab heard these words, that the prophet Elijah came and dropped a bomb on King Ahab. Elijah told him in 1 Kings 21, 20-24, he said, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel the Lord also said, The dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat, and anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat As we saw last week, it was a great day to be a dog or a vulture in Israel. So Elijah told Ahab that he and his family would be breakfast for the dogs and the birds. And as soon as Ahab heard these words, he melted. His heart was pierced by the word of God. He repented. He did all the things that you were supposed to do to show that you were repentant. He tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth. He fasted. He went about dejectedly. There was remorse, true remorse. And the Lord told the prophet Elijah that because King Ahab was remorseful, because there was true repentance, then he would delay the judgment until Ahab's son came to the throne. Now, does this make you uncomfortable? Maybe the idea in verse 26 that Israel referred to idols as dung pellets, maybe that makes you uncomfortable. But then along comes verse 27, and God hits you with that jab in verse 26, and then he hits you with the right hook again. It's like a one-two, and you take it on the chin. God once again has mercy on Ahab. What? Does it bother you? Maybe you're thinking Ahab's repentance was not real. Listen, only Jesus knows what is happening in someone's heart. Only Jesus knows if Ahab's repentance was sincere. And it appears that Jesus thinks so because he says so in verse 29. Only Jesus knows if repentance is sincere. You don't. I don't. So no matter how much we huff and puff and try to act like we can, the reality is that we do not know how and we are not skilled in the ability to read human hearts. Let me say that again. No matter how much we huff and puff and try to act like that we can, the reality is that we do not know how. And we are not skilled in the ability to read another person's heart and what's going inside there and what they're thinking. Even though we say things like, they're not really sorry. I can just tell. They're not really sorry. It's not genuine. We don't really know, do we? We have no idea what's going on inside someone's heart. We act like we do, right? We have no clue, zero, nada, zilch, but Jesus knows. Jesus knows if someone is truly sorrowful, and I'm comfortable with him taking the lead on this. Are you? We do this, though, don't we? We assume that we know what's going on in someone's heart, what they are thinking, what they are feeling, and we really have no idea. And when we do this, you know what? It's just pride. That's all it is. And we may be shocked to find that we may actually be doing exactly what the devil wants. As C.S. Lewis said, And any of us may at any moment be in this death trap. Luckily, we have a test. Whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good, above all, that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on not by God, but by the devil. If you think that you are better than someone else or that you know what's happening in their heart, it's a death trap. And you're playing right into the devil's hand. You're doing the devil's work, not the Lord's. Even though we say things like, they're not really sorry. We don't really know. But Jesus does. Jesus can spot true repentance a mile away. But understand, it's not the intensity of our repentance that cleanses us. The blood of Jesus washes away our sin, not our repentance. Do we need to repent? Well, of course, but it's not the intensity of it. It's not the length of it. It's not the well-crafted prayer that cleanses us. We look out to Christ to be saved and forgiven. It's his blood that washes us. His blood that cleanses us. His death that covers our shame. Not our repentance or the intensity of it. And so you can huff and puff all you want, but King Ahab repented. So we may not be comfortable with a God like this who once again showers Ahab with mercy and grace. But how many of us have experienced God this way? All of us. And so this text makes me want to worship the merciful God that we serve. He's so good to people like King Ahab. So good to people like us. I'm so glad that this is how Jesus operates. There would be no hope for me if God weren't this good. No hope at all. So I'm totally okay with Jesus showering Ahab with mercy. Because he does it to me every single day. But does this make you uncomfortable? I mean, to be sure, we love reading verses that highlight God's mercy, right? Like Psalm eighty-six, fifteen, which says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We like that. We like that verse when the devil reminds us of our sins, right? But what about when someone like Ahab is on the receiving end of the merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love God? We don't like that so much, do we? And that's why, as we've, see, as we've seen over the past few weeks, that grace is not just amazing, it's also offensive. Very offensive. King Ahab had sewage running through his veins, and yet he humbled himself, and grace came flowing down. Just like that. There, there's no probationary period here. There's no timeouts Grace, pure grace traveling at the speed of light to this dark sinner. It's all proof that there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. And so understand that when we say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner, we are not asking God to do something that he hates It's not like we're asking him to take us to the airport at 5 in the morning, right? You ever have to ask somebody to take you to the airport at 5 in the morning? You're kind of like, do you think you could take me to the airport? When do you leave? 5 in the morning. When we come to Jesus and say, have mercy on me, it's not like that. Like, will you please have mercy on me? I'm a sinner. No. It's not like he hates showering us with mercy. In fact, he loves it. He loves to shower us with mercy and if you don't see God this way, then you won't want to repent. You'll have no desire to forsake your sin. When you've been worshiping dung pellets, if you think that what awaits you is a flick of God's knuckle off your head, then you won't want to return to him. I had an uncle growing up who always just like flick us on the top of the head with his finger, and it hurt. I'm still trying to get over that. If that's how you view God, that every time you come, he's like, I'm just going to flick you on top of that. Come on, boy, get your act together. If that's how you view God, you will not want to return to him. But if you see him standing there with arms open wide waiting to embrace you and to kiss you and shower you with affection, then you'll hightail at home as fast as you can and you'll, you'll leave your sin in the dust. Let me ask you today, how do you see God? How do you view him today? Is he frowning and distant? Or is he smiling and welcoming? Listen, everything in your life rides on that. How you view God. But notice that two times the text tells us here that Ahab humbled himself. Two times Yahweh says that Ahab humbled himself. And that's why Yahweh showered Ahab with mercy. Ahab repented and God showed up. That means that Jesus is drawn to the humble. He's drawn to humble people. Jesus responds to repentant sinners. And so repentance is really just humility. Humbling yourself before the Lord. And humility brings God close. Repentance brings Jesus close. The hope of the gospel is that as we humble ourselves, Jesus draws near to us. And so to get Jesus to show up in your life requires humility. It requires a bended knee. I mean, if we want Jesus to show up here at grace and make a difference in our city and on the central coast, it requires humility on our part. Getting on our knees and confessing our sins and telling the Holy Spirit how desperate we are for Him. takes humility. And humility grows in a heart that is centered on Jesus. That's the environment where humility thrives and where humility grows. It's a heart that is centered on the gospel, a heart that is centered on Jesus. So humility begins with eyes raised to Jesus and knees bowed before Jesus and hands open to receive from Jesus. And so discipleship... And that's what we're about here. That's our tagline here at Grace is we want to stay busy making disciple, making disciples. Making disciples who know how to go and make disciples, who know how to go and make disciples. So discipleship, that's what we're about. Discipleship is really just about going deeper and deeper into humility. We see this with the Apostle Paul. In around AD 53 to 55-ish, Paul writes the the letter of 1 Corinthians to the Corinthian church, and Paul says this, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Then you fast forward about five years, and this is what Paul says around AD 62-ish when he writes to the Ephesian church. Now, he says, five years later, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, then you fast forward two years later to AD 64 ish, and what does Paul tell Timothy? The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. And so Paul starts off calling himself, I'm just the least of the apostles. Then he goes down into humility five years later and he says, you know what, I'm the very least of all the saints. And then two years later, he's going deeper into humility. Now he can say, I am the foremost of sinners. That's growth in the Christian life. We don't grow up, we actually grow down. So discipleship and Christian maturity moves downward into humility. It is growing in your unworthiness of God's grace and mercy. As you begin to plumb the depths of sin, you begin to face what really lies at the bottom of your heart, and then as your eyes adjust, you begin to see the beauty and glory of Jesus more and more and more. And so the beginning place of humility is Jesus, seeing him in all of his beauty. It's crying out to Jesus. So let me ask you, do you want more humility in your life? Do you want to learn how to humble yourself like King Ahab? Well, if you can pronounce Jesus, then you're well on your way. If you can bend your knees, if you can raise your hands, if you can open the empty hands of faith, then you are in the sweet spot to receive from Jesus good news is that Jesus is drawn to humility. He's attracted to humility. He cannot resist humility. He can't stay away from a bended knee. If Jesus sees a Christian down on their knees, he's like, ah, there's a Christian down on their knees. I got to go. Because grace runs downhill, as Jack Miller said. Jack Miller also said this, To be near God and to have God near us is the whole purpose of human life. But without repentance, there can be no face-to-face fellowship with the Father. The Lord cannot resist the broken heart that has experienced true repentance. He will not, he cannot stay away from repentant sinners. This Holy Father sees humanity in all its nastiness, and yet is given to strange, tender excesses. His love explodes into joyous action whenever a convicted sinner turns toward home. God loves you where you are, not where you've been pretending to be. The last thing we want to admit is that we are weak, foolish, and sinful. But we are tense in our imagined righteousness. What we really need is just to face the truth about ourselves. When we do that, our lives have a special appeal to God and to unbelievers. God loves to hear a person cry out in heartbroken honesty, Lord, I am nothing but a poor sinner. Send help quickly or I'll die. Listen, God loves you where you are, not where you're pretending to be. Ahab faced the truth about himself. He humbled himself, and his life became a special appeal to God. The Lord cannot resist a broken heart that has experienced true repentance. So Ahab cried out in heartbroken honesty, Lord, I am nothing but a poor sinner. Send help quickly or I'll die. And God heard and responded. God loved Ahab smack dab in the middle of his sin. And God loves you where you are, not where you're pretending to be. And some of us are pretending this morning, aren't we? I'll just let that hang there for a second. Some of us are pretending this morning. This is the good news of the gospel that should leave us absolutely baffled and bewildered. God the Father sees humanity in all of its nastiness and yet is given to strange tender excesses. That's the gospel. It's a love that explodes into joyous action. Now, it's also very important that we notice that Yahweh is not canceling his judgment here. He's just postponing it. Ahab will not see God's judgment in full force. It will come later. So, There are still consequences to our sin, which we've seen repeatedly throughout 1 Kings. There are still consequences to our sin. Listen, you can sin your way out of your marriage. You can sin your way out of your job. You can sin your way out of a church. You can sin your way out of anything, really, but you can never sin your way out of God's grace. You can really mess your life up, but God's never going to turn his back on you. There are consequences to our sin, right? Our marriage might crumble because of our sin. So don't miss that here. There's still consequences to Ahab's sin, even though God has been wonderfully merciful to him. But God postpones his judgment here. In other words, God changes the calendar date. But it's still on his calendar. Maybe his judgment won't come in March, but he will bring it in September. It's still in his iPhone, still on his calendar. It will come. And so we see from 1 Kings 21 that sometimes God delays his judgment in response to a human response, in response to repentance. So please don't think that anyone is getting away with anything here. They aren't. Is that shocking and offensive to you? That God postpones his judgment for when Ahab's son takes the throne? If that offends you, take it up with Jesus. He's the one who decided to postpone judgment, not the preacher. So don't shoot the preacher, okay? I'm just telling you what Jesus says here. I'm just telling you what God's word says. Sometimes God delays his judgment in response to a human response. That's the kind of merciful God that he is. He's good to repentant sinners and so Yahweh doesn't destroy Ahab's family immediately but it does come in 2 Kings chapters 9-10 and 10. Ahab gets to experience God's mercy here in chapter 1 he gets to experience God's goodness and that ought to make you fall on your knees because you too get to experience God's goodness and you don't deserve a drop of it not a drop neither do I He's just that good to us. He really is. Listen, Christian, in Christ, God is pleased with you this morning. No matter how much we fail him, no matter how fickle we are, no matter how spectacularly unfaithful we are, his love endures forever. The Gospels, they promise that no matter how weak we are, how much we fail, how bad our love stinks, how fickle we are, God will not let us go. The Gospel declares to unfaithful sinners that we live in the perpetual favor and unabated delight of God, and it's all because of His Son, Jesus. That ought to make you fall on your knees. In fact, I would say we do our best Lord's Supper On our knees, don't we? Think about that. We do our best Lord's Supper on our knees. And so the table before us this morning should humble us. On the cross, Jesus took the blame for all of the shame-filled things that we do and have done. And so the cross is all the proof that you need that there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. And so when we come to this table, Jesus comes to you and me and he says, you bring your internet history and I'll bring the bread and wine. Or as in our case, the grape juice. I mean, isn't that great? That's what we celebrate here today with the Lord's Supper. You bring your internet history. You bring your shameful past. You bring the list of idols that you worship. You bring the list of all the dung pellets that have captured your heart. And Jesus brings mercy. You bring your past, that thing that still haunts you and you can't seem to shake. And every week when you're singing to Jesus and your heart is full of joy for what he's done for you. And then that thought comes in, but you did this. You bring that thing this morning and Jesus brings mercy. You bring how you yelled at your kids as you got ready for church this morning. And Jesus brings mercy. You bring that bitterness that's just eating away at you and that hatred and that jealousy and that resentment and Jesus brings mercy. As Horatius Bonar, a Scottish pastor once said, it is with our sins that we go to God for we have nothing else to go with that we can call our own. All that we can bring to... To God, that we can call our own, is our sin. And Jesus receives us. That's why he came. He takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. That ought to make your knees buckle. Today, you can eat and drink with joy because there is more mercy in Christ Than sin in us so Jesus is not surprised what you bring him this morning he's not wondering do we have the inventory to cover this guy's sin he's not worried at all you just come pour your heart out and if you have not placed your trust in Jesus see the burning love that God has shown you in the death of his one and only son and come now bow your knees before him Why would you close your heart to someone who loves you with such burning passion? Why would you close your heart to the God who loves you with such burning passion? Receive him today. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your burning love for us. That was evidenced in your perfect life your perfect death and your perfect resurrection. So we come to you this morning with nothing that we can call our own but our sin. And we bring it by the truckloads, Jesus. And we back it up to you and say, here's all our sin. Here's all our junk, all of our mess, all of our selfishness. Forgive us. And in your loving kindness, you say, I'll take that and you can have my righteousness. And so we thank you for that this morning. We humble ourselves before you. We open up the empty hands of faith and say, We're just here to receive. And so as we eat and drink the Lord's Supper this morning, would you show up in your very real presence and encourage our hearts? May this be a time of celebration, Lord, not a funeral. Jesus, we're not here to celebrate your funeral. We're here to celebrate your resurrection and what you've done for us. So may we leave here encouraged today that you love and forgive sinners. Would you do that? Meet us here this morning for our joy and for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.